This week, we're doing something slightly different. And by we, I mean me, because I didn't invite any guests on this week. I had some things I wanted to talk to you about. And to be honest, just didn't plan ahead well enough to have just the right person in here to talk to me about it. So uh, I'm going to make an attempt of just talking to you, the listener, and uh, try to keep it interesting. But from experience, having done this before, I know how hard it is to keep it interesting for an extended period of time. But fortunately, I do have a bunch of different things to talk about, things I've been thinking about, things I've been working on. And um, hopefully that all fits into a coherent podcast. But let's get started with the maybe the biggest thing, the, the thing that I was focused on for a little while was a brand new camera. It just came out as of this recording, and um, I was fortunate enough to get one a little bit early. That definitely doesn't always happen. I'm not on all the cool kid mailing lists for camera reviews, but this time I was able to try out the new Fuji X100V, which is the fifth of the Fuji X100 series, and got to spend some time with it and see what I thought, see how it worked, and tried to fit it into my workflow. And, you know, if any random camera shows up in my lap, I'm not necessarily going to take time out of my day to talk about it on this podcast. But the X100 series does have a special place in my heart as just one of my favorite camera series that was actually built. Um, So predating this camera, I had told everybody I know that I just want an amazing point-and-shoot camera that has a fixed lens that is super sharp, has some shallow depth of field. It's not super versatile, like you can't necessarily have a lot of zoom range or different functionality, but it's great for, you know, theoretically, a professional doing point-and-shoot photography or uh, just a daily carry camera. And then, of course, now, you know, it's been years since that happened and the reality of what Fuji gave us with the X100 we're pretty used to by now, and a few other companies have tried their hand at it. But Fuji was really the first one to completely dive into it. And along with that, you may also have noticed, introduced the beautiful retro styling back into the world of digital photography. And actually, you know what? It kind of kills me to even call it retro design, uh, although I know that it is. I mean, I know uh, most contemporary cameras don't exactly look like this. Uh, the, the new look is much more like an SUV. It's kind of bubbly with very smooth, curvy lines. And most cameras are all black. Basically, most cameras that are released these days, to, not to my eye, look like a running shoe in a bad way. Uh, and I don't like <laughs> running shoe design, especially. They're very like swoopy and, and trying to be modern in what ends up feeling kind of 80s to me. And I don't love it, even though I, I love all these cameras. I mean, right now I'm, I'm talking about cameras that I use and enjoy and appreciate, but design-wise, visually, aesthetically, they're not going to last, I don't think. I don't think they're going to go down in any history books as being covetable design items. They're not going to be referenced by future designers. They are going to be somewhat forgotten, even though it's what we're all shooting on now. They're very significant in terms of production, but they don't look great. Anyway, X100 reinvents that. Um, and, and like I say, I think it's underselling it to call it retro. It's just that previously in, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, camera design was more interesting. I think it was better, uh, just like car design. I think car design is horrible now. Maybe it's why I completely... Don't pay attention to cars much. I don't. I don't follow the car world or sneakers because they all look like the exact same thing. These swoopy, bulby, like they're just—I don't know—like marshmallows with scoops taken out of them. That they're so round to be completely boring. And this is just design-wise. This is you know the cars that we drive are like this too, but it's very common, and I'm very bored of it. And basically it makes me ignore the design. I never think about, you know, how beautiful is, is my 5D because it's because it's not really. X100, yeah, they, they did a good job, but you just have to take a glance at it to realize that it is a, a very beautiful camera. Let's talk about what it actually does though, because, you know, everybody can just look at the design and have these same thoughts. In terms of using it, the image quality is fantastic. I mean, it really is 
it qualifies as a professional's carry around everyday lens. It has a smaller sensor. I believe it's just APS-C, right? Uh, somebody correct me if I'm wrong on that, but it is, you know, not full frame, but still pretty large. So the lens on it is 23 millimeters. And I, I had been thinking it comes out to around 35 millimeters, but that math doesn't, I don't, I don't know. Somebody tell me the equivalent, but I do know that it's f2.0. So you definitely get shallow depth field. You get some bokeh in the background in a very nice way. And the lens is fast. I mean, it means you can shoot in pretty low light. Low light performance was great. The samples that I posted on, I think the best place to look at them is Twitter because Twitter has much better image compression these days than Instagram. But take a look at those samples and you'll see that they're just extremely clean. Um, You know, the ISO was turned up a decent amount. I think these ones were around like between 1800 and 2000. And uh, the uh, f-stop was around 2 to 2.8. And they turned out great, really clean, really sharp. Because that was probably, if there was one big flaw of the previous cameras, it was that when they were wide open at f2, the lens was not actually that sharp, uh, especially closer focus. Like if you have the lens just a few inches or, you know, less than a meter away from subject, it would get pretty blurry, um, not only in the corners, but also in the center of the frame. And that's not really something you want. I mean, I think we all kind of lived with it because it felt slightly retro, maybe. I mean, there's absolutely a trend in lenses to use older, less sharp lenses because it also creates an aesthetic. But I'm not, that's not mine. I mean, I like things to be sharp. I think a lot of people do now. There's definitely a high value placed on, on perceived sharpness anyway, like do things look like their tack focus uh, at the point where they are supposed to be? And it does a much better job of that. Um, what else was good? Physical controls. They are all very easy to manipulate with your fingers without going into any menus. But if you do want to go into menus, the big change is that now there's a touch screen and a flip out screen. Flip out is becoming necessary to me. I mean, I know we went a hundred years without flip out camera screens, but now that I've been using them more and more, I spend a lot of time looking down at my camera held at waist level. Um, so I guess prior to flip out screens, we were you know doing that with Hasselblads. Uh, you know th- that that style of of it's not called a viewfinder. What's it called when you look down at it? That was around. Um, people shot that way, but now we're we're kind of going back to it, or I am at least. And so being able to hold the camera lower, look down at it, and yeah, tap on the screen for autofocus, it's great. Um, Very nice to use. They did end up removing some of the buttons on the right side of the camera that would typically navigate around your menus. I ended up being fine with it. I forgot that they were missing until I went back and looked at the, oh yeah, I forgot to mention. So we already have an X100F, the previous one, the, the four. Uh, and it is mostly Anya's camera. So I haven't used it a ton. I don't feel as qualified as some people to, you know, dig deep into what is a good and a bad Fuji because I don't shoot the whole Fuji line. But that said, we have some amount of experience with it. And yeah, I had to pull out her old X100F to even remember that these buttons were removed on the side of it because the touchscreen was a better experience than it. This leads me to my biggest complaint about this camera, though, by far, is that I would have accidental inputs in a lot of different ways, and I I never really figured out exactly why or how I was doing it. And so maybe it's my fault after a longer period of time with this camera, maybe I'd stop doing it. But I think one of the things is that the joystick, the little, you know, video game thing that sticks out and you use your thumb to move around, sticks out pretty far and is relatively easily bumped. Also, the touchscreen is very sensitive. So the way this affected my using of the camera is often I would end up moving the focus point to far corners of the screen totally unintentionally. Just some, my finger, my hand, something would brush up against the camera somewhere and all of a sudden the focal point is way off in a corner and I can't even see it anymore really. Like it's so far away that just looking at the screen, I don't realize where it has gone and that's not desirable and not a problem I seem to have with the Canon EOS R or had with, well, I didn't have it with the Sony, but to be honest, I I think I eventually turned off the touchscreen on the a7 III because I just didn't, I found its touchscreen much worse. So 
this Fuji touchscreen, it works better, but maybe it works a little bit too well. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd bump myself around the screen a bit. And then the other thing that happened, the worst thing that happened is I actually found myself non-intentionally suddenly navigated all the way to initialize memory card. And it did it. It cleared the card um, without me looking at it. I just looked down and saw a confirmation like, look, we, we erased your card for you just like you asked. You're welcome. Um, that was really annoying. And uh, fortunately, I was easily able to recover it uh, using Disk Drill from uh, former podcast sponsor uh, Set App. Uh, it's a nice thing about Set App is it's just in there and you can, um, like, I didn't have the app installed, but I just searched my spot uh, spotlight of my whole computer and I'm like, recovery software. I don't remember what I typed, but that came up because Set App finds all the stuff in it. So, um, I, I had used it before I used it again and it recovered everything from the card. No problem. That's fine. But that should absolutely never happen and really freaks me out. And I, like I say, I don't know how I navigated there. It happened while I was basically just holding the camera and kind of doing something, the cameras in one hand, I was doing something else, look back at the camera and I had suddenly navigated through all the menus and completed a card, uh, deletion. <laughs> so really didn't enjoy that experience. But like I say, fortunately, that wasn't the biggest thing happening. That's not what happened most of the time using this camera. Generally, it worked very well. The photos turned out fantastic. The ability to autofocus was very accurate. I love being able to look through the viewfinder and switch back and forth between an optical rangefinder view, which uh, does something really intelligent. If you haven't seen it before, what it'll do is give you a digital overlay of, well, all your shooting information, you know, your shutter speed and blah, blah, blah. But also it'll change the square or the rectangle that represents the framing of your image as you move closer and further from your subject. If you haven't shot with a rangefinder, you may not realize this is an issue, but it's the basic concept of parallax that two different optical pieces are viewing from a slightly different angle. So they are seeing a slightly different thing, even though they are close, they are different. So when you look through the little, uh, I was going to call it, what's an EVF that's not electronic, a viewfinder. Um, it, it's always, it's consistently the same thing through its piece of optics. And it is only the same as the lens from infinity distance. So when things are really far away, looking through them will be the same. As your subject comes closer, it becomes more and more different from the lens. But what it does is draws a digital square, digital rectangle around what your final composition will be. So you can have a very accurate idea of what the subject, what will be in your frame, even when in a traditional film environment, you would have had to guess. You couldn't, you couldn't have seen it. I mean, even on a modern Leica, I believe, which I haven't shot any of the recent digital Leicas, you would um, basically be guessing at that, at that composition. Although I, mm, I don't know. I know there are preview modes. I've seen that on some of the older Leicas, but they're not they weren't this sophisticated. Maybe the new ones are better. Like, uh, send me a camera and I'll find out if, if they're better. Cause, um, you know, I, I like, like us too. And that's, that's something to say about the Fuji's. Like right now, if you want to go out and get a, a beautiful camera that is non-intrusive to the people that you're shooting, the only options to my mind are Fuji and Leica. And not many people have the budget for Leica, even though they are really fantastic cameras. So Fuji has filled that niche of a handsome little carry around camera that has really great image quality, beautiful colors that come out of it. I mean, people spend a lot of time talking about Canon colors and we, we all enjoy them and like them and, and use them. Um, it, to me, Canon becomes the default. It's just what a normal image looks like. So when I go and use Fuji, which has a variety of different film emulations, like they... Canon has like the Canon look. Things are all kind of using a similar Canon profile that has evolved slightly over time. You know, between my 5D Mark III and 5D Mark IV, there is a difference in the color profile, but it's gradual and subtle and an evolution. Whereas these different film presets inside of a Fuji are completely different looks. You can switch between them and have some pretty beautiful JPEGs that come out if you like to shoot that way. I absolutely do not have the confidence to trust the processing of um, of my images to a, a JPEG. Maybe if these were 10-bit heaps, I, I would. 
because then I could manipulate them a little more in post. But um, even when you shoot in a RAW format, what I was doing is then using Lightroom's, what is it called, Uh, profile match, which Adobe has basically gone and tried to match profiles of various camera manufacturers and whatever you're shooting with. It will try to replicate the look that was inside of the camera initially and does not as good of a job as the camera, but it gets kind of close. And I was using the Fuji ones and it did a decent job and looked really nice straight out of camera. I would still always edit it a little bit more. There's nothing perfect out of a camera, but it it looked very good. By the way, for an interesting take on um, all this stuff, I would go back to episode 62 with Simbarash because he had recently switched from Sony to Fuji. I think just for his video needs, uh, for most of his stills, he's shooting film, but he found that the colors were basically enough. Like that was the biggest argument. Even to go from full, full frame down to cropped sensors, switching from Sony to Fuji because the colors are just so good in Fuji. And actually, that's a really compelling argument for Fuji's right now is if you're going to be something doing video, which bakes in the color a lot more, they have F-Log built in, which is you know a, a log profile, so you can get pretty decent dynamic range out of it. And uh, also the, I think it's called Eternia. Is that the cinema one? There's a cinema profile as well that is not log, but looks great. So let's say you're shooting for social media or something with really quick turnaround. You can have that beautiful color baked into your video files and just do very minimal adjustments to it later. And actually, maybe I'd also refer you to episode 40 where Nick Thomas was on and he shot a very beautiful short film on the Fuji X-T3 called The Memento of Life. And that really shows off those Fuji colors and shows you what a, a real cinematographer can do with these relatively consumer level cameras, but with amazing image quality in them. So yeah, I love what Fuji's doing. I don't really have time to split my workflow between another camera brand. So I'm, I'm, I'd love to play around with it. I mean, in the end, like I said, we've had the Fuji X100F for a while now and I end up shooting with it relatively little just because if I'm bringing a full-size camera, it's probably for work and then I need something that does a little bit more and otherwise I'm going to bring my phone. I do think though there is there is room for this camera for people that, I don't know, it's a great hobbyist camera or I don't know. I don't know. There, I'm sure there are a lot of people. I, I want this to be the camera. Okay. This is, this is what I'm trying to say. I want this to be a camera that is always in my jacket pocket and it's ready to go. And it's what I shoot my family photos on because it looks way better than an iPhone. Um, other than, you know, the same dynamic range issues that all uh, non-phone cameras are facing these days, but it, it looks great. Like this is, these are images that I would want to hold on to forever. And it's the point and shoot I want to have with me. But the reality of my life ends up being that I need to have a bigger camera. So to be honest, these kinds of cameras don't come around with me, but I want to be using them all the time because they're really, really good. So anyway, that's my uh, quick-ish review of the Fuji X100V. And go to show notes. There'll be links to some of the sample photos. You can take a closer look for yourself and decide what you think of this camera. And over all this time testing the Fuji, the last week, so I guess I had it before that, but the last week, anyway, we've been on a road trip uh, traveling, and this gave me the opportunity to spend a whole bunch of time with another new camera, and that is the GoPro Hero 8. I've never been a huge GoPro user, but I've always really liked the idea of them. Like, well, (laughs) same thing I just said for the Fuji, huh? Uh, but, But it's true. I did find more really practical use for the GoPro on this. On this last trip, I used it in ways that were very, it's gotten a lot more useful lately. And I'll tell you why. So first of all, this trip was, we drove from Calgary to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which turns out Jackson Hole is the name of the the area and the actual town is Jackson. And the fact that we didn't know that until we got there means they need to do a better job of branding themselves <laughs> as a town. But it's a really, really beautiful place. When we got there, we really enjoyed it. And um, both went skiing in Jackson Hole, which is an amazing, 
mountain. And by the way, when I talk about a skiing, like we ski quite a bit, like we get out a number of times every year. If you look at Anya's Instagram, you'll see lots of ski photos, but we don't do it very aggressively. Like we ski a lot, but not mm, putting ourselves in any kind of danger. So imagine a lot more blue runs rather than black runs. And that also means that uh, when we're shooting this on a GoPro, it's maybe a little less intense than what you imagine in a GoPro commercial, but I I think that's fine. (laughs) We're we're having fun. Uh, I don't think it's about showing off. Do you? I don't know. Maybe you do, but, um, yeah, we're still using the GoPro to capture our ski adventures and it's doing a great job and it's doing a way better job than it used to. Um, so we also had the GoPro hero seven, which had most of these same benefits. Like I, I really liked the seven. It was a huge jump over the six. And the reason for all of this is the body stabilization, adding that hyper smooth feature. I feel like they didn't get enough credit for how amazing it is. You, you might have image stabilization on your bigger camera. Like, uh, you know, the Sony had it. Um, I've heard the Panasonic's are very, very good, like super stable, but on this GoPro, it is a gimbal. It, I mean, equivalent. It is crazy smooth. It's even stronger than a phone. And I find that iPhone stabilization is also extremely strong. Uh, we also end up pulling the iPhone out to shoot ski videos pretty often. And it does a great job. It, it looks very stable. But the GoPro is so aggressive with its stabilization in a good way that it just locks on. Like you, I'm so surprised that I see anybody using a gimbal and a GoPro these days because you absolutely don't need it. And there are also boosted modes for how stable it can be that uh, you basically can't shake it. Like I was watching people do tests online where they're just flipping the camera side to side, rotating it quickly or looking up and down. And if you turn it way, way up, it starts to avoid even doing quick movements like that. It's really insane what it does. And I don't find that you need that. If you just turn on the normal hyper smooth, it is that what it's called? Why am I calling it that? Um, yeah, it is. Okay. Hypersmooth is the, the trade name. Uh, anyway, it is it is hypersmooth and you don't need to turn it on to the boosted mode. But the 8 has now added the some of those stabilization options to faster frame rates and to bigger formats. So we were able to shoot 4K60 and it was super smooth and it looked really good. And I, I don't know, I was very impressed with this camera. It's uh, It's super wide. In which is great. Uh, it's funny because after spending some time shooting with the uh, what's called the 360 camera, Insta360 One X, that's what I was using last year for a lot of our ski stuff. Now the GoPro doesn't even feel wide anymore because the 360 camera is crazy. I mean, obviously it's infinitely wide. You're just seeing on all sides of you. But um, often what you do with the 360 is you zoom out to a more normal, like just just very wide, like a, a kind of fisheye look, um, but you wouldn't necessarily be, um, you know, looking at the actual 360 environment all the time. And now the ultra wide or what's the, the widest thing on a GoPro is called super view, where it goes to four by three ratio and just uses the whole lens. That's very wide, but um, you know, I found that when I would mount it in places to try to get my perspective, it just still wasn't as wide. The, cr- the craziest way to do this is to take the Insta360 and put it in your mouth, and that gives you the craziest first-person perspective. Although, you know, if you don't crop it correctly, you can also see up your nose, which is super weird. Um, anyway, the GoPro Hero 8. I loved it. I found it needed about at least three batteries a day to get through skiing because lower temperatures burn through it really fast. But it uh, the image quality is just so good. It's really really solid. Uh, you know, at least as at least as good as an iPhone. In some ways, kind of cleaner because it's not doing any of the HDR stuff, which does show some artifacting in in video occasionally, and it's a little bit more of a pure look, more like a real camera, not tons of dynamic range. You know, you always wish for more with any point shoot camera, but does a very respectable job. And, uh, yeah, I'm very happy with how the footage came out. Also, the microphone does a better job of hiding the wind noise than the Hero 7 did. So all in all, GoPro Hero 8 gets a thumbs up. This episode of the Stallman Podcast is brought to you by Timing, the app that tracks your time automatically instead of manually. Let's talk about why you should be tracking your time. For anyone billing their hours, this might seem a little obvious, but 
Even if you are employed or billing per project, you need an estimate of how long a specific task is going to take. Time tracking helps you stay on track with those estimates to make sure that you don't end up in the red with your projects. And that can help make more accurate estimates in the future. Enter timing. Instead of making you start and stop timers, timing automatically tracks how much time you spend on each app, document, and website. It shows you exactly when you were working on what, when you slacked off, and how productive you have been so that you know how to improve your productivity. But you know that work doesn't just happen at your Mac. That's why the timeline automatically makes suggestions for filling gaps in your timeline. That way, you'll never forget to enter a meeting. And with the automatic sync feature, your track time will magically appear across all your Macs. So even when you're on the go with your MacBook, you'll have the full picture on your iMac when you get home. You can track on the go from your iPhone and make use of the Zapier integration that lets you connect timing to services like FreshBooks. And something for shortcuts, timing have shortcuts ready for you to use to make time tracking even easier. And side note, you know how I was talking about SetApp earlier and how sometimes you just realize that an app that you've always wanted is just sitting there waiting for you? That's actually the case with timing. It is part of SetApp as well. And that's how I first started using it is that I had heard Mike Hurley talk about it and say how great it is. And I realized, hey, I've already got this with setup, so I just installed it and turned it on and started using it. And another thing I really liked about how it does the billing and tracks the specific project you're working on is when you have different projects open, different libraries open in Final Cut, it's telling you exactly how long you worked on each of those libraries. So if I edited for six hours on a YouTube project and three hours on a client project, I can split those up individually without having to remember or do anything manually. I can just see at the end of the week or the end of the day, whenever I need to check, I can see how much time was spent on each individual project. That is incredibly helpful. Timing is so confident that you're going to love their fuss-free approach. They offer a totally free trial. Download the free 14-day trial today by going to timingapp.com slash Stallman, that's S-T-A-L-M-A-N, and save 10% when you purchase. Stop guessing how you spend your time and instead focus on doing what you're good at. Thanks again to Timing for their support of the show. Something I've been thinking about a lot lately is how to improve the look of video that we create. I think we do a decent job for our clients. I I think they think we do. (laughs) People have been happy with our work. We get jobs making videos. But I know it could be better. When I look at the work that we publish, I'm always like, you know, it's good for what it is, but I have seen work that I really look up to and there is a difference. So I don't know where you are in your career. And actually, I mean, I don't even know if your career involves creating images of any kind. Um, that would actually be great to know if, if people, if you can like, you know, come find me on Twitter and tell me what you do for work. I'm going to, I should just do a survey about this someday, but uh, um, you know, how many of you are actually doing this professionally? That'd be very good to know because uh, it may be none. Maybe, maybe I'm just talking to myself out here and you guys are like, just talk about phones more often. And uh, I just want to talk about bigger cameras, <laughs> but you know, okay. These are things I think a lot of people can apply to their work anyway. And there are ways that we have tried to improve our imagery, especially when it comes to commercial clients, because I think that the expectations should be higher than they are. So we're at a level right now where the clients that we're working for are usually what you'd call direct-to-client, meaning that we are interfacing directly to most of the time with the actual uh, person that is hiring us. Uh, they're telling us what they would like us to do, and then we tell them how we could execute it, and we basically do all of the work. Just you know, between them and us, all the work happens. That is a smaller-scale way of working. And depending where you are, that may sound either like a, a very advanced type of career because, you know, it is a real career for us. Like we make good money off of it and we we live off of it. But at the same time, it is not high-end commercial workflow. So, uh, for example, I've, I've spent a lot of time lately listening to the Wandering DP podcast, which I probably recommended before. And if I didn't, I am recommending it again, uh, where Patrick O'Sullivan, who is a commercial filmmaker in Perth, Australia, does breakdowns of a lot of his commercials. So in his show notes, there'll be photos of work that he's done recently, and he will 
do lighting diagrams of like, look, this is exactly how I lit it, how we made all the decisions in each shot. And if you have any interest in commercial production, I, you, you have to be listening to it. It's, it's fantastic. Um, I've learned a lot from him. That scale of production, the type of things he's talking about is the more like real level that, you know, I, I would love to get to. Um, it, it's not necessarily, maybe we won't get there. We're in a smaller market, you know, we're in Calgary, Alberta, most of the time, even though we travel quite a bit. So, you know, there's no guarantee that we'll move the budgets of our projects from, uh, you know, the, we'll add another comma behind the, the amount that it costs for us to work on something. But I'd love to at least be producing things at that quality, even if it's with a smaller team and a, a small crew and there's no, uh, you know, creative agency in between. So, yeah, if you were to talk to somebody like Patrick, somebody that's doing you know, the latest Nike ad or the latest Facebook ad or whatever, like, you know, bigger stuff. There is a lot more people, there are a lot more people involved in this, like a a lot, Uh, especially in terms of a creative agency is really going to be coming up with all the concepts and they will hand you storyboards of like, look, this is exactly what you're going to shoot. And you as a cinematographer, which is, you know, how I typically describe my title, uh, well, I mean, no, I don't actually, there's no, there's no need to describe titles on the jobs that we work at because they're small enough that, you know, between Anya and I, we're typically kind of just doing it all plus whoever else we've hired. So often that'll be assistance, um, versus on a larger scale set that would be, you'd also have a gaffer and a grip, um, at a minimum, then you'd also have, you know, audio and a dedicated director, in our case, it's typically Anya and I are doing both of those things together. We're doing all of it. Uh, we'll have people on set that are, yeah, assistants, stylists, um, hair and makeup, and the client. Sometimes there is an agency involved, but typically it's not the same as a creative agency. It's more of like a production agency. Um, it depends. It depends on exactly how we're working, but it's not the same rigid, I don't know if rigid is the right word. It's not, it's not as systematic as at a high level where it's like everybody has a job title and they actually stick to the job title for us. And I imagine a lot of you, cause this is, there's more people doing this level of production than doing the high end. I imagine for a lot of you, um, you're working in a similar way where you got to wear all the hats. And you know, that also means editing. Like the fact that we edit these videos, that would be crazy at a higher level, but we do. So we are handling it from beginning to end. And that can be exhausting sometimes, but um, where was I trying to go with all this? Anyway, point was, I want to do better. And here are some of the things I've been thinking about and trying to do to do a better job of it. First of all, um, is definitely in terms of lighting. Uh, that is an area that typically goes out the window pretty fast when you are a very small crew. Like, let's say you're a a one person crew. That is not uncommon at all. Especially let's say you're doing event work. You just show up somewhere and you have a camera and you make the do with it. You, you, you try to capture what's happening in front of you and have it look half decent. And you're lucky if they happen to turn the lights on when you get there, uh, let alone having the privilege of uh, shaping them yourself. But assuming you're at least at the point where you can have a little bit of control of your lighting here are some things that I would recommend that I've been thinking about to take some first big steps towards making it a lot better. And also interesting, oh, see, this is the problem with not having somebody else here to keep me in line. I'm just going to go all over the place in tangents. This also reminds me of the differences between video and photo in terms of how you light them. There are just such big differences in, in the standard practices The biggest one is in photography, typically, you start by adding a light source directly facing the subject. You you look at the person, let's say, let's assume it's a person, you look at the person that you're going to be lighting up and you shine light on them, either from a flash on the camera, maybe, or you move the the light slightly to the side or, you know, it's, but it's generally, it's coming from the front. The, The light is between the camera and the person. That seems real. That's the obvious thing to do. That, that, that is just naturally what anybody would attempt to do because why would you do anything else? Like, what else is there? What do you, why am I even talking about this? Of course, you put the light on the subject. Why are we even talking about this? Well, the more time that you spend looking at narrative or high end commercial production, you will start to realize that that is not a common way of lighting anything. Just go 
look at a movie, look at a bunch of stills from like pull up print Pinterest and look for beautiful cinematography frames. Very few things have the light coming from the front at all. Typically, the start, the default beginning is to be lighting from the opposite side of the subject towards the camera so that things are basically backlit. And then from there, you're choosing how much you're going to fill that light back in depending on the look that you're going for. So, I mean, anybody that follows Wandering DP, he has a very dark look. Um, it's beautiful. I mean, like, his, his work looks better than mine. I, I still hope to uh, be able to light anything like that. But it's definitely in a world of, of you know, darker narrative visuals. Same with, you know, I mentioned Nick Thomas, the cinematographer that was on previously. He has a relatively a darker look too. I find that a lot of cinematographers are aiming for that. Like they are trying to push projects to have more of that kind of gritty, more shapely light that is on the darker side because it feels more like feature films. And it's what, you know, I think we all secretly kind of wish we were shooting feature films whether uh, whether we actually want to you know spend six months working on it or not, we want things to look as good as what we see in the movie theaters, and often that means a more you know contrasty, dramatic look. That's not necessarily always appropriate to all commercials. In the world that that we work in, Anya and I, it is typically not what the clients are looking for. They want something that feels a lot brighter, airier. Um, you know, a lot of our stuff is. Yeah, you know, fashion and needs to be very, the clothes need to be very visible. It's not as much about people's faces and stuff like that. It's like you got to see what is on, on the person or we've been doing all this, uh, all these hotels lately, a lot of hospitality, that stuff, same thing. It's like, it needs to feel very positive and, and, and relatively bright. Still, the rule applies that generally you want to be lighting from behind and this has been an interesting and challenging thing for me to integrate more and more. And the steps I'm going to be taking immediately to push it further than I have previously is using negative fill. Um, this is where you basically bring something black into some area of the frame near a subject to reduce the amount of light that is being reflected back onto that subject. So let's say you're just, uh, you know, looking at a, a person's profile. The person is, you know, side of their head. Uh, you already have light from behind them. Let's just say they're outside to make it simple, right? So you, the sun is up and to the left and you are looking sort of towards-ish the sun, like the sun is in your field of view, but not necessarily in the frame. And then the person's head is filling the frame of the image. Now, wherever that person is standing, there will be a whole bunch of light coming from behind them and creating that shape that uh, wrapping around source of the light, which is what you'd call the key light, even if it is, you know, in photography, you always think of the key light being on the camera side. Like that's typically the big softbox that you have in front and overhead of your model. But in video, often a key will be in the back. Um, and ge generally it's just meaning the brightest light. Like this is the defining light source of the whole scene and everything else is somewhat secondary. So that key light is coming from behind creating a rim and some shape and then you're going to decide how much light is going to be bounced back into them a lot of the time the default reaction like what a lot of people do especially photographers is they'll just grab a reflector it might be silver it might be gold and they're going to hold it from below the person and just shine it up into their face and that person gets a little bit blinded and it's hard to keep your eyes open um, but it creates a very unnatural look and um I've never been a fan of it, and I'm only starting to understand why lately. Uh, what you want to do, what I'm going to be trying to do, is I picked up a few reflectors recently, just cheapos off of Amazon. And they are those five-in-one types that basically can be flipped inside out in any direction that you want. They can either be white or black or silver or gold. That's only, oh, or translucent. If, translucent, if you take the whole thing off, it can be a diffuser. What I'm most interested in them for is the white side and the black side. And this basic method, when you're outside and we've got our person in profile standing there, is that, let's say that sun, it's up to the left. What you're going to do is add a reflector that is coming from that same direction as the sun. So sun's on the left, you put the reflector on the left and you make sure it's white. It's not colored because all the colors look super fake. And you're going to lift that 
so that it is not coming from below the person, but it is at a reasonable height, like let's say above their eye line. That'd be a good place to start. I mean, this is that specifically something I need to experiment with based on recent episodes. Uh, I mean, I hate this. I'm like copying somebody else's podcast. Anyway, it, it took a lot of, (laughs) here's what happens if you go listening to Wandering DP. There's like, I don't know, he's over 200 episodes now, but he'll always be referring back to, like I always say, you always want to be doing this and assumes that you heard the previous episodes. The challenge is we haven't all heard all the episodes. So sometimes it takes a while for a concept to sink in. So anyway, one that's sunk in recently is the objective of getting the reflector on the sun side high up so that the source of light feels like it's still coming from the sky. And if you get a catchlight in the people's eyes, again, it looks like sky. It doesn't look like a reflector. So then the next step, which this is what I haven't done yet. I, do, like, I don't nag shots right now, but we're going to try. <laughs> um, you're going to bring that black reflector, which you can't really call it a reflector anymore. Now it's, now it's a negative fill. And you're going to hold that on the side that is opposite of the sun. Sun's on the left. Neg fill is on the right and close to the camera, um, basically preventing as much light as you can from splashing back into the person. And, you know, a lot of the time that bounced light will also have color to it. The worst example is if you're on grass or in a park or around trees or whatever, a lot of green will sometimes be bouncing back into people's faces. And it's really hard to clean that up. So in this situation, you've got black that is preventing that green from splashing back on the shadow side. And then on the brighter side of their face that you want to light up, you've got just pure white, looks clean, looks not like anything unnatural. It looks like it's not there, hopefully. And then behind, you've got the sunlight creating that wraparound shape. So this is a this is a concept that is universal. Like it, this type of thing happens all the time when you're looking at movies, and I'm telling you because it took me years to realize how often this was happening, and I'm only this year starting to integrate it into our work more often. Uh, again, this kind of stuff can be applied with artificial lighting as well. You don't need to only do it with the sun. Uh, you may not. I mean, I don't know. The way that I see other people using neg fill, like um, the way that Nick Thomas does it or Patrick O'Sullivan does it, it's more contrasty than what I'm interested in. Uh, I think, like I said before, we want to keep things a little bit brighter. So, uh, you know, I think we'd pull that neg fill back, um, you know, more have it trying to prevent polluting colors from entering rather than really deepening the shadows a lot on the person. Uh, and we definitely would want a big reflector. So this is another important point that I think a lot of people get very wrong. And I think it'd be a great topic for a YouTube video is the way that softness is perceived in lighting. I think people get super confused about great example is something I've seen people do over and over. I don't want to name names. You've got a diffusion, piece of diffusion of some kind. Let's say it's an umbrella or, uh, or, or better yet, it's one of those five-in-ones because we're already talking about those. You throw away the reflector, you throw away the neg fill, and I've just got a translucent, translucent, translucent piece of diffusion where you, know, you shine light through it and it gets much softer. That's great. You're going to get a nice, soft light source. And uh, you're, you're holding that piece of diffusion near a light. And what people will do is they'll bring it so close to the light that they are almost touching and think that is somehow diffused. The most common version of this that is crazy, but you, you, somebody listening, you guys do this because it, it happens everywhere, is putting a piece of diffusion on the front of your flash. Like uh, old school trick is like putting a piece of Kleenex there. Or you can buy those Gary Fong bubbles that go on the front of it. Or recently we picked up a new Godox flash and it comes with some really cool cool little magnetic clip-ons that will help diffuse light. That does make the light less um, sharp. There is a quality of it that changes as you diffuse it at the source, but it does not become soft light until it becomes a big source. Softness is all about the size of the source, and if it is small, it will always look like a hard small source. So a flash on a camera, doesn't matter how diffused it is, it's going to create hard shadows because it is a single point of light that is 
very small relative to the subject. Does that make sense? Now, if you take that piece of diffusion that you are waving around here, <laughs> I'm holding in my uh, hand invisibly here, and you hold that in front of your light source, what happens is that as you pull it away from the light, all of a sudden the whole piece of diffusion starts to fill with light. You will see that the, the light isn't just hitting a small circle where, um, you know, it, it, that is the size of the original light you're working with. It gets bigger and bigger as you move the diffusion away. And what's actually happening is the light source is becoming bigger relative to your subject, to the person that you're trying to light. That's what makes it soft. That's why in real movies, you see diffusion being 12 by 12 feet or 20 by 20 feet. Like the diffusion is huge when you want it to look really natural and really soft. You can't get a really, really, really soft look from really small light sources. So what I would love to be doing, I would love to have 20 by 20s or 12 by 12s or whatever, eight by eights, just giant sources whenever we're uh, lighting up a scene. But um, honestly, that also takes human resources, takes a lot more people than we typically have on set. So that is going to be relatively rare. We can only really do that when we're in studio. But more and more, I'm going to be trying to increase the size of that light source and yeah, basically just get it softer. There was also um, a recent video by Spencer Sakurai, link will be in the show notes, where he is demonstrating this, and especially in the context of how often people just use, let's say, a default aperture um, 32-inch softbox. Um, we all use softboxes all the time because they're super convenient, but they all end up looking the same. And they're also usually not that big and not that soft, even though the word soft is in there. They're not nearly as soft as, let's say, you just hang a sheet. It's way softer. Or bouncing the light off the wall. Tons of our photos are just a flash pointed against a white wall. That is the softest office, softest thing you can do. Problem is, there's not a lot of direction to it, so it'll often just like raise the ambient level of the room. But it's super soft. Um, anyway, bigger source matters a lot. Check out Spencer's video to get a sense of it. There's so much more I could say about this. I got to do a video about it someday. What else do I have before I finish? Oh, yeah, one other thing. So a little more gear. So uh, I did my obligatory obligatory not talk about gear the whole episode. But something else that we picked up that I'm extremely excited about is wireless monitors. I've wanted this for a very long time for our client work, and I think it's going to add a lot to it, especially because it also just means adding a really high-quality monitor uh, to the camera. So that is the Small HD Cine 7, which is a 7-inch Small HD monitor. Um, it's, you know, it, it's a good one, which I'd been wanting. Like, I have had, what did I just get rid of? So I had sold the Small HD Focus OLED, which didn't turn out as well as I'd hoped. I really liked it at first, but I gradually realized it's not that bright. So outdoors, you really couldn't see it. And it is also, it is glass edge to edge. And because of that, there's nothing protecting the rim of it. So what happened was somewhere in my bag, something just like tapped, I swear. I mean, it was not a big impact. Just hit the edge of that glass just a little bit and it kind of shattered didn't shatter. It sent a crack down the center of the screen, though. That really bugged me. And I, I definitely see it as the fault of that design. Um, if there was plastic around the edge, similar to the Focus 5, which is the uh, LED or LCD model, it wouldn't have cracked. It would have held up to it. And also, I just have started to find 5-inch screens too small for a lot of stuff. Um, you know, if you're using a 5-inch, you, you might be using it for a long time, and it will be fine to you. But I have found so many places where I'm staring at a five inch. I'm like, I don't know what I'm seeing here. I, I can't trust my eyes at this size. I don't know if it's in focus. I don't know what's going on. I need to see it bigger. So these wireless ones, uh, the, the great thing about the Cine 7 as well is that it can do SDI input, which is a locking cable instead of HDMI, which is a very consumer type of connection that can easily fall out or break. Or I mean, there's so many things wrong with HDMI. SDI locks in and is never going to fall out. And then it can also pass the signal through either via another SDI cable or an HDMI cable. So I can have this new Cine 7 on top of the camera and then run a cable out to a TV nearby. And that can be a bigger monitor. Or I also, 
well, like I said, this is wireless. So uh, the signal is also wirelessly being sent to a small HD Focus 7, which, uh, yeah, also similar size. I mean, you can get the focus of these wireless ones as well. So, uh, but I, I definitely did not want to have the focus on camera because I wanted to make sure we could have that SDI input, which also, this is, this is pretty specific. There's limitations with the C200 about which LUTs you can send out to your monitor depending on the output and HDMI is restricted, whereas SDI gives you more flexibility. Anyway, SDI is just, it, it's the professional way to do it. And I'm trying to purchase less gear that won't last us forever. Like that isn't the good version of it. So if it, you know, it means maybe, you know, buying something today that is the cheap version so we can start using it now or waiting six months to a year and get the good version. I want to wait. Um, and that's kind of what we did in this case. We, we waited quite a while and now I'm very happy to have them because I think that they're going to be a very important addition to our video creation. Uh, that's all I had in front of me for notes. I know I have more thoughts, but I, um, I still think this is relatively useful. I, you know, if I was listening to this, I would have found it interesting, but that's always the challenge. So if you guys want to be more of a part of the show, you should go to Twitter, which is where I waste far too much time. And, uh, I maybe post some of the most interesting stuff that I do. And also, you know what I'd super appreciate? I don't ask for this very often, but it would be so cool if you dropped a review in iTunes for this podcast. I don't know if it makes a difference anymore. I think that it does. I mean, when I'm subscribing to a podcast, if there's like no reviews for it, you look and you're like, nah, this isn't a real podcast. Nobody listens to this. I don't want to be the only person listening to a podcast. But if there's a ton of great reviews in there, um, you know, it makes it seem more legit and maybe also boost it in rankings. Is that actually the case? Either way, I would really love to see what you guys think of the show. So if you put anything in the iTunes reviews, I will read it and I will be very thankful. So again, thanks for joining me this week, guys. Uh, I'll definitely have some great guests lined up in the future, but also try to do some solo shows because I don't know, it's kind of fun to just let my mind wander. Uh, fun for me, hopefully fun for you too. <laughs> um, anyway, see you guys next week. <laughs>